Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given to us. God, thank you for the opportunities we have every day to uh, honor you, Lord, the opportunities we have to discover more about you, to learn more about your character and your nature. And Father, that every day is a new opportunity to glorify you. And I pray that we would take this charge seriously. God, that we would be imitators of Christ every day in every aspect of our lives. Lord, that we would be striving for fruitfulness in the Christian life, that you would help us to uh, have a solid foundation of faith on which to build our lives. And God, I pray that this study tonight would serve that end of providing that foundation of our faith and that direction for our lives. So God, let your spirit enlighten us this evening. Help us to discover all that your word has for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're down just the last couple of weeks of our covenant theology class. This week and next, and then we are done. Okay. That's what we were, I had just asked Michelle that. Mm, Yes. It's coming down to it. Um, So... Last week, we you know, talked about the final judgment of the Old Covenant. Now we're going to get back to the New Covenant. So for the you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about how Christ instituted and ratified the New Covenant in his blood. We talked about all the benefits that go along with the New Covenant being in Christ. We're justified. That means we're declared not guilty. We're given a new heart. All of that. Tonight, we're going to talk about the signs of the new covenant. Uh, So we're looking at a couple of, just to kick us off, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and then we're going to look at uh, Matthew 27, verses 26 through 29, as we discuss the signs of the new covenant. So Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then if you turn back to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, as I mentioned, we talked about the new covenant, which is this gracious arrangement through Christ, in which uh, individuals are adopted as children of God, we're made citizens of his eternal kingdom, and we enjoy all the blessings that flow from that that I just mentioned. We're made right with God. We have fellowship with God. We have new hearts. We are you know, set for glory and resurrection. And that's the... It's important for us to understand the new covenant as being a reality. It's not some sort of theological construct. It's not something that, you know, people came up with to sort of make sense of scripture. It's not, you know, a secret, you know, cipher to discern scripture. It's an objective reality. It is, and it's the reality of being in Christ. And it's hard for us, I think, at times to think of the covenant in that way because it's immaterial. It's, you know, it's a, it's a spiritual union that we have with Christ but it is absolutely a binding reality. Um, And again, it's that reality of being in Christ. Jesus satisfied the terms of the covenant. He sealed it with his blood, and he became our covenant head. And so it is a, it's rooted in history, in what Jesus did. It's binding. It has real blessings, real concrete promises, real expectations, and real obligations for those of us who are in the covenant. It's not fictional. So it's really important to understand that. And the covenant is the foundation of our faith. It is our assurance of faith. Way back 
in the very first week we read from Hebrews 10 on the full assurance of faith. And I said then that the way that we get to that full assurance of faith that the author of Hebrews had spent the whole you know, first three quarters of the book talking about is understanding the covenant that we have in Christ Jesus with God. And so just as, as we've seen throughout this class, God fulfilled every promise of the old covenant, he will do the same with the new covenant. And this is the foundation, the assurance of our faith. And part of what gives us assurance, part of what strengthens our faith, part of what testifies to the reality of the covenant are the covenant signs. In essentially every covenant, um, there's a sign that goes along with it. We have this in the Old Covenant. We see this throughout Scripture. There's a sign attached to the covenant. And really important to understand, I think oftentimes we think of the covenant signs as being pretty much symbols that point to, you know, it's kind of a, a material symbol that points to the spiritual reality, an outward institution that points to something that's, you know, inward and invisible. And there's that element to it. That dimension is with the signs, but that's not the extent of it. Um, the covenant signs go far beyond just symbolizing spiritual realities. Um, they actually serve an important function of sealing, ratifying, and renewing covenants by virtue of the signs. Um, oftentimes, the signs serve as actual oaths. And this is another concept that's important for us and that I think most of us miss, or it's really easy for us to miss. miss. Um, the, you know, when we think of oaths, when we think of swearing, we usually rightly think of, you know, swearing with our lips, you know, using our words to make an oath or a promise to bind ourselves to something. But we can also swear oaths with actions, uh, certain actions that we take can in scripture. There's, you know, a, there's a lot um, a lot of examples of this in scripture, but certain actions can serve as actual oaths that we bind ourselves to. And so, um, and this, you know, again, we, we put so much emphasis on the spoken word only, and the spoken word is important, but the physical oaths that we take with our actions, with our bodies, uh, you know, when it comes to the covenant are just as binding as the vows that we verbally take. And it's really cool because this does reach down to you know, the, the foundations of our nature, that we are incarnate creatures. We are physical creatures. We're not just you know minds and mouths, but we're physical creatures. And so the actions that we take have very real significance. What we do with our bodies matters. Mm -hmm. Um, and this significance can be at times covenantal. You guys with me so far? Hopefully when we get to the signs themselves, this will make a little bit more sense. I'm just kind of trying to lay the foundations right now. <clears throat> um, another thing that's significant about the covenant signs, when we swear the oath through the covenant sign, most of the time if not all the time, the signs point to both the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And we, you know, again, thinking of it in these symbolic terms, usually the most natural way for us to think about the signs is they point to the covenant blessings. Amen. It's true. But when we think about the signs as also being an oath, saying, if I do not remain faithful to this covenant, then you know, let this curse fall upon me, then you also can see the signs with their flip side as um, threatening curse for disobedience. So an example of this that we did talk about earlier in the class is the rainbow in God's covenant with Noah that it pointed to this was an oath that God took by giving this sign of the covenant. 
It pointed to the stability of the creation that God promised he was not going to destroy the world by flood, that he was going to accomplish all of his purposes for this creation, but also threatened curse upon God if he were to break his word. Remember, the rainbow is like a bow and arrow pointing up to God, God saying, if I fail to keep my word, then the curse is going to fall upon me. So the sign of that covenant is both the you know points to the blessing and the threatened curse. Circumcision, you have the same thing. Under the old covenant, Jewish males bound themselves covenantally to God by being circumcised. It was an oath in the flesh, and it obliged them to keep the whole law. When they, you know, when the when the child was circumcised, that was an oath that this child is in the covenant and he is obligated to keep all the law of the covenant. The sign promised the blessing of being set apart, being cut off, being holy to God as a chosen people. And then everything that came along with that, the presence of God, the land, the kings, all the rest of it. But, you know, so that blessing of being separated from the rest of the world but also circumcision threatened the curse of being cut off, being removed or disinherited from God and from the covenant body um, for unfaithfulness. Does that make sense? Do you guys see there? You have the blessing and the curse both alike. And so it's important for us to understand that to participate in the covenant sign under the old covenant, with the Noahic covenant, and also as we're going to see in the new covenant, is to swear an oath. It's to acknowledge the covenantal bond, the obligations of the covenant, the blessings that are promised to us in the covenant, and the curses that are threatened if we're disobedient. Uh, the covenant signs, they also symbolize, like I mentioned, kind of the uh, outward realities of the covenant. And so, in that way, they can serve to remind us of, um, you know, our the promises that we have, you know, and especially when we get to these concrete examples, we'll see that. So they they point to the outward realities. They remind us of the blessings of the covenant. We also see the covenant signs serving as covenant renewal. Um, this. Uh, these repetitious signs that people will engage in that reaffirm, reconstitute the blessings and the obligations of the covenant. We see this you know, throughout the Old Testament. One example that even works in our own day is once again the rainbow, where every time there's a storm and the rainbow appears after, that's a sort of covenant renewal where the sign is enacted by God and it reminds us it reminds all of creation that God is remaining faithful to his word, to his covenant bond. And so there is a sort of renewal there where it is, you know, a reminder is given to the people. The, you know, it's reaffirmed that this covenant stands. Under the old covenant, examples like the Passover, the feast days, especially the Day of Atonement. You'll see special covenant renewal ceremonies in the Old Testament. These served a similar purpose under the Old Covenant, where the people would regularly, you know, you had the several feast days throughout the year, they would regularly reaffirm the covenant realities, their bond with God, God's promises to them, serving as this perpetual reminder to the people. Um, and so, I lay all that groundwork just to say, make the point that covenant signs are deeply important. It's not just ritual. It's not just symbolism. It's not just kind of an outward demonstration of faithfulness or belonging to a group. But the covenant signs have a real meaning. They have real consequences and they are really binding for those who participate in them. Do you guys have any questions on any of that so far? All right, turn to Romans 6, please. So the reason why we read those two passages in Matthew to start off is because under the new covenant, we are given two covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two signs of the new covenant. <coughs> so the first one we'll consider is baptism. And there's a few passages we're going to look at. But we're going to start with Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, Jesus, at the end of his ministry, commands that baptism be given as a sign to all those who become disciples of him. And this is the first sign of the new covenant. It is a one-time sign of the covenant. You receive baptism once, and it's not a sign that gets repeated over and over again. Um, you know, like circumcision, you get that one sign, and then that's, that's that. Um, now, primarily, the significance of baptism, it points to the fact that one has died and been raised with Jesus, just like Paul said there in Romans. We were buried with him by baptism in order that we may be raised with him to newness of life. Um, and so it testifies to that essential covenant reality that we talked about a few weeks ago, of being in Christ, that Jesus is our covenant head, and so that his death is our death, his life is our life that we are joined to him, completely united with him in that death and resurrection, buried with him and raised up with him. That is the, that's the blessing of the new covenant, right? Being in Christ, getting new life in Christ, resurrection life in him. And so in that way, baptism points directly to the chief blessing of the new covenant. So it is a concrete, outward, physical, visible symbol of the covenant reality that we are joined to Christ, we have died with him, and we have been raised with him. It symbolizes that cleansing of sin, the forgiveness that we receive in Christ, the new life that we receive by the Spirit when we're born again. All of that is captured in baptism. And it also does hearken back to circumcision. There is a certain continuity between circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul compares these two, or you know, speaks of these two, in relation to one another in Colossians 2. <clears throat> Verses 11 and 12, we read, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul there does take circumcision and baptism, make certain comparisons there. Um, and so there are similarities, but important for us to understand that Baptism is not the same as circumcision. They're similar, but they're not the same. They have a certain correspondence, but they're not identical. Um, and this is where everything that we've talked about throughout this class, you know, is important. This is, you know, the big debate. Should we baptize infants or believers only? It comes down to this question of what do you believe about the covenant? And so... We've gone through all the groundwork. Now, finally, here's the application why we believe that you baptize <laughs> believers only. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are two different covenants. That's what we talked about throughout this class. Back into the fall, we were talking about the, the Old Covenant is a big type pointing to the greater reality that is the New Covenant. Um, you know, we're told in Scripture that the covenant in Christ is new, better, different, that the old is vanishing away entirely. And so if you just if we keep that in mind, then we can very you know beautifully appreciate the similarities between the two without trying to make them identical. So just as circumcision is the sign of entry into the old covenant, baptism is the sign of entry into the new covenant. Circumcision signified being set apart from the world unto God. Baptism signifies being dead to the world and alive to God. So there's a similar setting apart that happens by the covenant sign. And both signs called those who received it to live a holy life in keeping with the covenant realities. That's what Paul says there in Colossians 2, that um, in Christ, 
we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that we may be raised with him. Romans 6, he said, for the purpose that we might walk in newness of life. Circumcision showed Israel you're set apart, and so you need to live a life that's set apart. Baptism tells believers that you have been you have died and been raised up to a holy new life, and so live like it. Be consistent. So there's a lot of beautiful similarities there, and you can really see this in the type, fulfillment, and then um, consummated structure. You can think of circumcision is the type in the Old Covenant. Baptism is the fulfillment in the New Covenant, but the final consummation is the resurrection, our physical bodily resurrection to glory. That's what baptism even now points forward to, right? That when we are, you know, dipped into the water and raised up, it looks forward to our actual physical resurrection. So even baptism isn't the final thing. It still has an element of forward-looking to it. Also important to keep in mind that the covenant sign doesn't make you a covenant member. And this is really important. This is another area where we can get confused or elevate the sign to something that it's not. So what this covenant sign does is that it acknowledges existing covenant membership. And we've talked about this before as well, that covenant membership depends entirely on headship. If you want to know if you are in a certain covenant, look at who the covenant head is. Are you attached to him? That's the question. So under the old covenant, every Jewish child born was born into the old covenant because Abraham was the covenant head over all of his physical offspring. And so everyone who had Abrahamic blood was in the covenant because they were physically descended from Abraham. You were in it by birth. And so that's why every Jewish male received the covenant sign of circumcision. Being circumcised as a child didn't put you into the covenant. Being circumcised was an acknowledgement that this child is in the covenant because he is born from the line of Abraham. Does that make sense? And so with the new covenant, we know that New Covenant members are those who have Christ as their federal head, those who are in Christ. And so when you're born again, you become a member of the New Covenant instantly. The moment that we are given a new heart, the moment that we are regenerated, that we undergo the second birth, we are immediately under Christ's headship and so in the New Covenant. So when we are baptized, that doesn't make us a member of the Covenant it testifies to the fact that we are covenant members. And that's why, because new covenant membership only happens when there's new birth, independent on who your parents were, on family lineage, just like it says in John chapter 1, those who were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of... I can't remember the last part, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, was that... Was that the blood? And I didn't hear you. I mean, uh, in John 10, 1. John, John 1. John 1. Yeah. But, um, but so, and he says in there that it's not about those who were, you know, born in the flesh, those who were born by the will of man, but those who were born of God are in this covenant and recipients of the kingdom. And so because it's those who are born again who are in the new covenant, that's why we withhold baptism um, for those who are uh, who are evidently born again, those who have credibly professed faith in Christ. Those are the recipients of the covenant sign because to the best of our discernment, they are covenant members and we're simply acknowledging that you know what God has already done in them, that he has put them under the headship of Christ. And so important to remember, the sign does not put you into the covenant. You're in. If you are born again, and then you know, if you are regenerated and you die before you were baptized, you will still go to be with the Lord. You will still go to heaven. Baptism is important, very important. We're talking about that tonight, but it doesn't make you a covenant member. Being in Christ does that. Does that make sense? All right. 
So the covenant sign, it's a testimony to covenant membership. And then, as I mentioned before, like the other signs, it constitutes an oath of covenant faithfulness. So under the old covenant, to undergo circumcision was to be under oath to keep the old covenant upon threat of curse. So it was a physical oath taken in the flesh that you are obligated to keep the law or you will, you know, suffer curse. To undergo baptism is to make, you know, a proclamation of faith in Christ, faith that Jesus has died and risen for our sins. And also it is to swear an oath of allegiance to Jesus in our bodies. When we are baptized, we are physically swearing that we are going to obey Christ, our covenant head. So it is, you know, when to be baptized, it's to publicly vow to, you know, just like, you know, similar to if you are getting married, you are publicly vowing to do certain things. You're taking an oath, you're entering a covenant. When we're baptized, Something similar is going on. You are publicly vowing to serve and obey Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, to live as a person who is dead to sin and who is alive to God. That's what you are doing when you're baptized. Um, And even though, so, you know, it's easier for us to understand because under the old covenant there were, you know, you could be disinherited from the covenant. You could lose the covenant blessings It was a grace covenant and a works covenant mix. We talked about that. The new covenant is entirely of grace. It's completed. So no (coughs) sin we commit can cause us to lose our salvation if we're in Christ. We talked about that. However, even though Christ bore the sins of the, the, the curse of the covenant, if you will, he bore our sins, there are real consequences for hypocritical oath-taking, if we undergo, if we participate in the covenant sign falsely, if we do it hypocritically, if we do it in vain, there are real curses that go along with that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, because that's where we're going to go to talk about this. And we'll also go to 1 Peter 3, so maybe if you want to keep a finger over there. Um. So the the consistent explanation of the sign of baptism is that it signifies passing through judgment, right? So we saw Jesus, you know, we're baptized into his death and we're raised up with him in that, that it points to Jesus' death and resurrection. All the references to baptism, what it signifies, what it symbolizes, it goes back to this idea of passing through judgment, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was judged for our sins in his death, and then he was vindicated in his resurrection. He passed through the judgment. He conquered it. He didn't remain judged. And so when we undergo baptism, the covenant sign, it's a picture of us being buried, dying, judgment, but passing through it in resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 10 and one and two, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. So he uses baptism there, comparing it to the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. And that was a picture of passing through judgment. The sea represented God's wrath and judgment. God parts the sea. The Israelites are, in that sense, baptized in that they pass through that judgment. And then when Egypt tries to pass through, what does God do? He consumes them with the waters of judgment. And then over in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see a similar analogy. First Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So, not to get into all the details of this passage, but he says clearly that baptism corresponds to Noah and the ark and the flood. And what's the picture there? That the waters of judgment covered the earth, but because God's chosen eight people were in the ark, they were able to pass through that judgment. They were preserved, kept safe until the waters subsided, and there was a type of new creation after that. So the sign of baptism consistently is presented to us as a sign of passing through judgment. Christ, like I said, does the same things And so when we are baptized, that's a picture of this passage through judgment. We talked about that with the blessing, dying and being resurrected. But at the same time, there's also the threat in baptism for those who swear in vain in baptism. Those who profess to be in union with Christ but really are not, there's the threat that they won't pass through the judgment, but rather they'll be consumed by the waters of judgment. Turn over to Hebrews 3, because in Hebrews, early on, there's these several passages that are pretty frightening, uh, warning Christians against you know, falling into apostasy, warning people who are professing Christians against turning their backs on Christ. And this really shows the nature of those threats that come with baptism. So again, it's an oath. You're swearing that you are united to Christ, that you're going to have allegiance to Christ, that you're going to obey Christ. But if that swearing is in vain, if your faith proves to be false, if you're not truly in Christ, um, check out these few passages. So Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. We are warned, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's a warning there. Be careful lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart and you turn back and you don't persevere in faith. Over to chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, similar thing. Be careful. Strive to enter that rest so that you don't fall by that unbelief and disobedience that the Israelites fell by. And then the most scary and you know famous of all chapter 6 beginning in verse 4 for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up in contempt For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So what's he talking about there? He says, and we've mentioned this passage before in this class, but it's for those who have professed to be in the covenant who have enjoyed to a degree the external blessings of the covenant, who have participated 
you know, been been around sound teaching, those who have, you know, he says, participated in the Holy Spirit, in that you are, you know, constantly being exposed to people who are filled with the Spirit and bearing the fruits of the Spirit, for those ones um, who, in spite of all that, still fall away, still deny the faith, there's a harsh judgment for that. So, essentially, um, the thing that baptism threatens, lost my place on my page, um, that the judgment against those who falsely profess union with Christ, who swear to their, you know, their covenant loyalty to Christ and then deny him, the judgment against those is going to be greater than against those who have never professed faith in Christ. There is a greater degree of accountability and culpability and thus a harsher judgment on those who have sworn falsely to belong to Christ. Um, those who have said that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is applied to them. Um, and so baptism is a sign of assurance of the covenant blessings for those who are in Christ and it's also a threat of judgment um, for those who are not truly in him, but nevertheless go ahead and undergo that oath. Does this, do you, are you guys following? Do you guys have any questions on any of this at this point? Okay. What, hmm. what if you, at times in your Christian life, question that, if you have that doubt, like, did I ever really commit, you know, because maybe I backslid or another time I drifted away, you know? So, and that's the, there's going to be doubt at times in the Christian life. The New Testament addresses this. Um, you know, we, there are times where we might doubt, you know, am I truly saved and we're called to examine ourselves. You know, when that happens, it's repentance is the fruit of the new life that keeps showing up. That even if we backslid, you know, if we are convicted of that sin, repenting of that sin, seeking to put it to death, not enslaved to that sin, then our baptism should give us confidence that, yes, this is something that God has done, not me, that it's not about, you know, my performance and living up to the standard, but I, Christ's death and resurrection is applied to me. And so we do have, you know, we should be reassured in that, um, but Still, we're called to be examining our lives. Look at the fruit that you're producing. You know, examine, is there repentance? Um, am I growing, even if it's slowly? Um, those things, absolutely, there's going to be some doubt. That doesn't mean that you are not a Christian or never were. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Second covenant sign, then, is the Lord's Supper. I want you guys to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, please. <clears throat> So 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read verses 23 through 32. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. <clears throat> so Paul there going into the Lord's Supper and its significance. And we read in Matthew 27 that Jesus at the Passover instituted the Lord's Supper. And this one, unlike baptism, is not a one-time sign, but it is an ongoing covenant sign. It's a covenant renewal sign. Um, 
what this signifies primarily is very similarly to baptism it is participation in the body and blood in Christ uh, the body and blood of Christ that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is applied to us and that it feeds us it supplies us with life that our life it, that we are nourished by the sacrifice of Christ that apart from Jesus death on the cross we are dead that's what the lord's supper points to and so just like baptism, it testifies to our union with Christ, that his death was for us, that it covered our sins. That's what we are acknowledging and professing when we take communion. And so, again, it points to the blessings and to the promises of the new covenant. Similarly to how circumcision is fulfilled in baptism, the Lord's Supper fulfills the Passover um, we see that, you know, we, it's significant that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal as the true Passover lamb, that one who fulfilled all the typology of the sacrificial system and especially the spotless lamb that was sacrificed on Passover. Um, and similarly to baptism, you can think of it in that type, fulfillment, and consummation where you have Passover as the type the Lord's Supper as the new covenant fulfillment, and the marriage feast of the Lamb in the new creation as the consummation. Like when Jesus says, I will not drink of the cup again until I drink it new with you um, in my kingdom. That looks forward to you know, the new creation where we feast with the Lord at his table in his presence. So Passover or I'm sorry, the Lord's Supper still looks forward to something even greater than what we enjoy now. Um, as Passover reminded the Jews of God's deliverance from slavery, their rescue from Egypt, that He redeemed them, um, that He brought them out of uh, out of bondage. So the Lord's Supper reminds us of our deliverance from sin. It reminds us that God has done everything necessary to rescue us from our enslavement to wickedness. And unlike baptism, like I mentioned, the Lord's Supper is an ongoing sign, and it regularly is to remind us of God's uh, saving work, that he delivered us from sin through the sacrifice of Christ. Um, also, unlike baptism, the Lord's Supper is explicitly corporate in nature. Um, so, and, and this is you know, really important to the sign of the Lord's Supper as a covenant sign. So baptism, of course, is public. Um, it's you know, done before the congregation, and it does testify that one uh, has entered into the covenant body, into that community. So baptism is you know, public in that way, in a sense corporate, but the Lord's Supper is explicitly corporate. It's the common covenant meal that overtly testifies both to our union with Christ and also our union with one another. And that's really important to understand about the Lord's Supper. And this is also why in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is addressing the issues in that church, he specifically talks about the strife within the congregation in connection to the Lord's Supper. So if you're in 1 Corinthians 11, back up to verse 18, I guess verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. So he's talking about them coming together for the covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul explicitly points out the discord, the divisions, the disunity, the lack of care for others, the disregard for one another as detrimental to 
the sign, the covenant sign of the Lord covenant, that it actually, and he says that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In a sense, this sort of disunity delegitimizes the sign. It's not valid. It, it, it does, in a way, invalidate um, the covenant sign. And so, when it's important for us to realize that when we have communion together, and this should be very concrete and applicable for us, that when we come together and have communion on the first Sunday of the month, that we're not simply testifying individualistically to our relationship with Christ. That's a part of it, but beyond that, we are testifying to the true nature of our spirit, our one spirit relationship to one another in the church body. And yes, in a sense to, you know, the universal church, but especially to our local church. We are proclaiming that we are all individually joined to Christ and that by virtue of that we are all joined to one another, that we have a true spiritual union with the people in our actual church. Think about the people who you go to church with. Don't, you know, theorize, you know, theorize this. Don't make it theoretical. This is, you know, very real and very concrete. And so Paul says that when the Corinthians are coming to the table together, sharing the meal together, and there's discord, there's disunity, there's division, there's a lack of regard and respect and care for one another, there's lack of love for one another, that it's delegitimized, and that it actually brings curses when that's the case. And so the Lord's Supper, it testifies both to the blessings of the new covenant and to the curses. So similarly to baptism, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are swearing an oath of union with Christ and union with one another. And there's a whole biblical theology of meals, especially in the Old Testament, to carry over into the New, um, sharing meals together oftentimes um, constituted covenant commitments. You can see that throughout the Old Testament that it was very significant when people would sit down, have these meals together. There's oftentimes a covenant that's going on there. And so that carries right over into the into the new covenant, that we are actually swearing an oath, that we are joined to Christ, that we are in union and in fellowship with one another. And so if we take this oath falsely, if we swear hypocritically, if we come in an unworthy manner, then as Paul says, we are guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. What we're doing is that we are blaspheming Christ's death and we will be judged. You have to think of it in that way, that our actions say something. And so when we go through the motions and you know we take this oath and we're saying, you know, pretty much, we're saying that we're in union with Christ, we're in good standing, we're in fellowship with one another, we're in harmony, but we're not actually, what we're doing is blaspheming, and that's why Paul says you're guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Very important to understand this. And so we can do this, we can come in an unworthy manner and swear falsely by, um, you know, by, by taking the whole thing lightly. Paul says those who eat and drink without discerning, so without really considering what it is we're doing and the significance of it. So by, you know, taking it lightly, coming in without, you know, proper contemplation, that is, you know, that can be swearing this oath falsely. Um, we can do it through coming with unrepented of sin, with active sin, when there's sin in our life. And I'm not saying that it's like you're Catholic and you have to go to confession and confess every sin you've done, but I'm talking about the manner of your life, that you are in a pattern of sin in your life that's not being dealt with, that you are um, engaged in sort of ongoing habitual sin that you're not dealing with, um, you know, serious sin. If you come to the table and you are professing that you are in good fellowship with the Lord, but in reality you are you know, living in sin and you're not repenting and you're not turning from it, then that's swearing this oath falsely. That's hypocritical. Um, or 
it can be taken uh, falsely if we do so when there's unresolved conflict within the body. If there are people within the church that we have had issues with. And again, I'm not talking about petty things or little personality <coughs> clashes, but I mean, you know, divisions within the church. If there's people there that, you know, I'm not speaking to this person, where there's been actual, you know, fights and conflicts, and you are not resolving that, but then you guys both go and you take the Lord's Supper together, that's blaspheming the blood of Christ, because what you're doing is you're professing, you're making a statement that we as a church are in good fellowship, we're in union with one another, and then, but if in reality you're all fighting and you're all, you know, backbiting and gossiping about one another, then, you know, that's, you're taking that oath falsely. Again, these should be things that we're actively thinking about. And so um, all of this, it's, again, not just theoretical. It's not just, you know, kind of in, you know, in, in our minds or in this spiritual reality. Paul cites actual concrete curses that follow this kind of behavior. He says in verse 30, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul yeah. says that there is real curse, actual curse that follows this sort of sin uh, concerning the covenant sign of the Lord. And so if we continue, he then makes that statement at the end there in verse 32. <clears throat> he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What he's saying there is that the hope that he's writing this letter and that God is sending these judgments to wake us up and call us to repentance, that we need to turn away from what we're doing and get to obeying God, ongoing unrepentance ultimately proves that one is not truly in the covenant, that one is not truly a covenant member. That's the evidence that someone is not in Christ, when there is ongoing sin that goes unrepented. Ultimate unrepentance shows one to be outside of the covenant, and then there will be condemnation with the world. So God, he judges, he disciplines in order to drive us to repentance, but if we refuse that discipline, if we refuse to respond to that, and we keep on going the way of sin, then we prove ourselves to be outside of the covenant, unfaithful, condemned with the world. Does that make sense? So these curses are real. This isn't, you know, fictional. And so we need to be considering that. So the oaths that we take with the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, Supper, he did suffer. Um, they're real. They carry real blessings, real curses if violated, and they do call for serious contemplation. We don't enter into these things lightly. Um, and so with the Lord's Supper, just like with baptism, it's only for those um, only those who are in Christ are allowed to have the covenant meal. That's why we guard the table. That's why you know we don't allow just anyone to have communion. It's for those who are in Christ, who are in the covenant, to participate in the covenant meal. And also, though, again, I don't want to be all doom and gloom because it's given to us for our encouragement and to remind us it's a covenant renewal. So in the Old Testament, there would be these you know, periodical covenant renewals where the people would all come together and they would be reminded of what God had done for them and all the promises God made for them and all the blessings that God had given to them. And that's what communion should be for us. It should be a regular reminder of our standing in Christ, of our union with one another, of the fact that, you know, even though we are, it should, it should remind us of our sin, right? Communion should be an occasion for us to think about our sin and repent of it, but then rest assured that Jesus died for our sins, that it's not about our works. It's not about us trying harder and doing better, but it's about Jesus already paid the price for our sins, right? And so it should be incentivizing us to quickly repent and also to quickly resolve conflict within the church. If we regularly are coming to the Lord's table together and we're taking it seriously, 
then it should be spurring us on to make sure that divisions and fights in the church don't fester and just kind of, you know, aren't left to simmer. That we should be addressing them, resolving them, and then coming to the table in true union. Does that make sense? Uh Any questions, you guys? All right, so the last thing that I want to talk about tonight, then, is that these signs of the new covenant and these realities of being in Christ and having taken these oaths, they necessitate church membership and church discipline. So these are this is part of why you know we do church membership. It follows from the realities of the new covenant. So God has entrusted elders in the church, pastors, with a very heavy responsibility of admitting and excommunicating. The Bible talks about binding and loosing, entrusted to the pastoral office. God has entrusted pastors to admit and to excommunicate regarding the covenant, that it is our responsibility to examine and discern people's professions of faith and to discern their fruit of their lives to see whether or not God has truly transformed their hearts. So it's not pastors that ultimately make you in the covenant or out of it, but it's our job to know you, to examine your life, to, you know, uh, to consider your profession of faith, to see the fruit that you bear, and to, in the light of Scripture, make that judgment as to whether or not you're truly in Christ. It's you know that's the that's the office and that's a heavy responsibility, um, and but the covenantal realities necessitate it, and that's again why you know baptism. We don't just say hey you know open baptism come on up. Like, we want to know you. We want to know your life. And then we want to try to examine to see whether or not you're truly in the covenant. And if, you know, to the best of our, you know, discernment you are, we'll go ahead and, you know, administer the sign. But elders need to guard the covenant and to hold individual covenant members accountable to the oaths that they took. And that's where church discipline comes along. So living inconsistently with um your covenant oath if you're continually living opposite the oath that you swore when you were baptized and you swore that you were going to live as a resurrected person that you were going to live uh in obedience to christ if there's this continual i'm not talking about the regular struggles that we all go through as christians that we are constantly battling sin and falling to temptation but i'm talking about continual habitual um unrepented of sin, that needs to be dealt with. Discord within the church, elders need to deal with. The proliferation of false teaching must be dealt with. It all needs to be confronted and it all needs to be disciplined. And so the office of elder, we're called to warn from the scriptures of what will happen to those who falsely swear to belong to the covenant. We're to warn of the judgment of God against unrepentant sinners. That's what church discipline is, essentially. It is holding people to the oath that they swore before God, that you are in this covenant, that you're going to obey Christ. It is seeking to restore unity within the church, maintain unity within the body. And if there's going to be unity, that means that there can't be unrepented sin because sin destroys union. And it's to warn people of what God will do if you go on in your unrepentance. That's what the office is for. And part of this discipline directly involves the sacraments, the covenant signs. It can include uh, barring people from having communion, from taking the Lord's Supper. It's a That's kind of a form of excommunication because it's communicating, it's pronouncing that someone is not in harmony with Christ or with his people. Um, you know, so if you are prevented from taking the Lord's Supper, that should be communicating to you that you are, you know, in serious violation of the covenant. You know, you're not in harmony with the Lord. You're living inconsistently and you need to repent. And then ultimately... It can church discipline can go to the extreme of formal excommunication, which is a proclamation from the office 
of pastor instituted by Christ, a proclamation that one's baptism is false, right? It is saying essentially excommunication is saying that even though you are baptized and that you received the covenant sign, you know, we presumed that you were in Christ, you swore that you were in Christ, but, you know, you're the fruit of your life and your ongoing unrepentance has proven that you're not in Christ. And so there is an excommunication, there a renunciation of your baptism, essentially, is what excommunication is, that you never truly were in Christ. And so it is important that we take the offices of the church, the office of elder, pastor, very seriously, what is said matters. And, you know, so on the one side, yes, you know, we're men and we don't ultimately know people's hearts. But the call from God is to examine people's lives and discern where their heart is at to the best of our ability. doesn't mean that we're going to get it right every single time. But it does mean that our warnings, our discipline, you know, confrontations against sin ought to be taken seriously and to be excommunicated from the church. Even if you think you're fine, to be excommunicated from the church is a serious thing and we don't enter into that lightly. So all of this ties back into the realities of the new covenant. It is something that's objectively true and real. And all of this, all of the church discipline, everything that we're talking about, it's meant to show the weight of sinning against the covenant blood of Christ, of saying with your mouth, yes, I'm in Christ, but then living with your actions in a manner that's totally disobedient to Christ. That's why church discipline is necessary and why it sometimes is severe, because the sin of unrepentant living for someone who professes and who has professed to be in covenant with Christ is so serious. And the ultimate design is to bring sinful individuals to repentance. That's the point. It's to show you are in sin, it's serious sin, and you need to repent. And the the hope and the prayer is that those who under who are under church discipline <coughs> would be you know that that the the discipline would impress them to then go and to repent that it would leave an impression on them that they would really examine their hearts and repent before God but like i said all of this is necessary because the covenant is real and objective if we are in Christ that means that we partake in certain blessings. It also means that we have certain responsibilities and obligations to God and to one another, and that we are joined to each other in a real sense. And so we shouldn't be frivolous in our relationships within the church. We have real responsibilities to each other in a similar way that if you are married, you're not going to be frivolous about that relationship and just take it or leave it, but you're going to do absolutely everything you can, everything in your power to make that marriage flourish. And if there's sin, to address it and to you know work through it and not seek to sever it. In a similar way, within the church, we have real union with one another. And so we have real obligations to each other. And so we shouldn't see our relationships within the church as something to just be very easily walked away from and disregarded. If there's sin, it should be addressed. If there's division, we should do everything in our power to resolve that and not just say, I'm out of here, I'm going to find a different church. Does that make sense? Do you guys see? This kind of goes right into the next class I plan on doing is Covenant Theology Applied, where we're going to talk about the real world significance of marriage, church membership, and citizenship. Those are three real covenants that uh, have implications in our lives. There's a little bit of a preview for that. Um, but that's all I have for tonight. Do you guys have any thoughts or questions on any of that? You have questions, Graydon? Lots of questions. All right, let's pray, guys. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you have done so much gracious work for us, Lord. 
We thank you that you have redeemed us and reconciled to yourself through your son by his blood. God, we thank you that you have indeed completed our redemption, done everything necessary. And we affirm and rejoice in the fact, Lord, that no works that we do play any part in our salvation. And that no sin that we commit can disunite us with God if we are truly in Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for your mercy. It's not about our works. It's about your mercy and faithfulness. But, Lord, at the same time, I pray that you would give us a true, somber understanding of how important faithfulness in the Christian life is, Lord, that we are not free to go on in sin, that, Lord, we are called to have repentant hearts, to examine ourselves, to bring our sin before you, to fight it every day, to seek to put it to death, and to trust, Lord, that by your Spirit, and because you have given us a new heart, we ultimately will be victorious in that fight against sin. We will someday be totally sinless in glory with you. We look forward to that. We thank you, Lord, for the signs and the reminders you've given to us of these realities, Lord God, that we have died and been resurrected with Christ, that we do share and participate in his body and blood because your sacrifice is applied to us. And Lord, I pray that we would take heart in these things, that we wouldn't become discouraged or grow weary, but Lord, that we would be um, extremely and abundantly faithful in our walk, Lord, that we would be quick to repent. And I pray, Father, for Redeemer Church specifically, that you would give us true unity in the body. Lord, that we would not be petty, that we wouldn't look for reasons to be offended, that we would have extreme patience with one another, that we would forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us. And Lord, that we would be quick also to repent to one another. Lord, that we would see how important it is to be united around the truth and that we would seek to foster and maintain that unity. God, I pray that all of our words, all of our oaths would not be in vain, Lord God, but they would be true and fulfilled through Jesus Christ by the power of your spirit. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.